Turn with me once again to Matthew chapter 1. I know we've been in Matthew 1 for like four weeks now. We will get moving beginning next week. Under the heading of all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for, the, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We're going to read this text. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asa, and Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Ammon, and Ammon was the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor. And Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim was the father of Eliud, and Eliud was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Matthan, and Matthan was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Well, we struck gold here in this genealogy, and I wanted to just try to mine as much of it out as we could together. And so late this past week, I came to the conclusion I didn't want to try to rush through all of this uh, just really important introductory text to Matthew's gospel. So just to get us up to speed on where we left off, first of all, this morning we had to establish what a major issue the coming of Messiah as predicted in the Old Testament is. We saw that the coming of Messiah, the anointed one, Greek, the Christ, this was necessary in part because of the Abrahamic covenant, because he, he would be the singular seed, the promised offspring that would capture the gates of Abraham's enemies. We saw especially that the coming of the Messiah was necessary as part of the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with King David, and really is the central feature of the Davidic covenant, the coming of a king from David's line. And we saw that Messiah is a king. And so the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which opens Matthew, becomes extremely theologically important for us. And Matthew does this masterful job of weaving together tremendous truths into this text. 
Now, we said this morning we were going to look at seven theological purposes for this genealogy, and these purposes ought to have the impact of magnifying and really increasing your awe of God. That makes you better worshipers, which is always our goal. This morning, we saw the first four of these purposes. The first purpose is that Israel is central. We saw that the genealogy is a reminder to the reader of the story of the central nature of Israel to all of the redemptive history. The structure of the genealogy tells this story. We characterize it as as the capital letter N, if you remember. You have the foundation of Abraham leading up to the high point of King David. But from King David, Israel falls to the low point of the Babylonian exile. And from the exile, Israel rises once again to the high point of the coming of her Messiah, Jesus, the very Son of God. So Israel is central. We also saw that God is sovereign. That the divinely orchestrated genealogy shows us that Jesus came at exactly the right time. The, The groups of 14 make the reader expect an apex to this story, a high moment. And and we're not disappointed because Jesus is the culmination of this genealogy. You remember that Paul said in Galatians 4, 4, God sent forth His Son in the fullness of time, the complete, perfect timing, exactly at the right time. Israel is central. God is sovereign. We saw also that Jesus is Messiah King. Jesus is Messiah King. That the genealogy is replete with references to the kingship of the Messiah. The five mentions of David. The mention of Judah to whom the kingly prophecy was given in Genesis 49. Even the possible use of the number 14 as the numerical value of the name David. Which at the very least we said keeps the discussion of Jesus David, Jesus David, Jesus David going. And then finally this morning we saw Israel is central, God is sovereign, Jesus is Messiah King. But we have to bridge this, we have to make, a, we have to bridge, make this connection. Not only is Jesus Messiah King, but the Messiah King is God. And we had to make that connection to the deity of Christ. That Messiah would not merely be a really powerful man sent by God. He is God and therefore he's worthy of worship. We saw that verse 16 changes the pattern of the genealogy to show that Jesus did not come from Joseph like all other men came from their fathers before them, but that Jesus came from God. And in fact, the virgin birth is the very next topic of discussion. It fits perfectly. So that's where we began this morning. Israel is central. God is sovereign. Jesus is Messiah King. The Messiah King is God. Well, here's our fifth theological purpose. God is gracious. God is gracious. Look with me at verse 10. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. I want to talk about Manasseh for a minute, but I can't do it better than Scripture can. So turn with me to 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles, if you get to 1 Chronicles, you went too far. 2 Chronicles 33, and let's see what Manasseh is about. We're just going to read his story and make a comment or two. Manasseh, I said this morning he reigned 53 years. I was mistaken, it was 55. And ironically, the longest reigning king in the history of Israel was the worst one. Isn't that the way it seems to go? Seems to go? We kind of feel that way in our own country sometimes. Second Chronicles 33, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh dispossessed before the sons of Israel. 
Indeed, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had torn down, and he erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Asherim were just big sticks that were carved up to to look like a, a god of some sort, and they were placed on hills or high places to be worshipped. Verse 4, And he built altars in the house of Yahweh, of which Yahweh had said, In Jerusalem my name shall be forever. Indeed, he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. In other words, he went polytheistic on us. He built altars to every god he could think of, and he did it in the temple. Verse 6, He even made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. What does that mean? It means that he practiced human sacrifice with his own sons. And he practiced soothsaying, interpreted omens, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much that was evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. Then he put the graven image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have set up for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to all the law, the statutes, and the judgments given by the hand of Moses. I, I don't know if, you're, if we're, we can really grasp the depth of the heinousness of this evil. This is like a man bringing another woman to live in the bedroom with he and his wife. It is at that level of disgusting, absolute selfish sin. And here is God's assessment. Verse 9, Thus Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray in order to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh destroyed before the sons of Israel. Did you hear that? Manasseh was more wicked than the Canaanites. It would have been better to be a Canaanite than to be a follower of Manasseh. Manasseh ignored God completely. This, this is not a case of ignorance. This is not a case of Manasseh being able to say, oh, I just, I didn't know. Verse 10, Then Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. But God is a God of grace who saves some. Is Manasseh savable? Verse 11, Therefore Yahweh brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress... He entreated Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Then he prayed to him and he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and returned him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. Now, is this a, is this a prison confession? Is this a prison conversion? No, there's true repentance. Verse 14, afterwards he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled the Ophel with it and made it very high. Then he put military commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. What is he doing? He's saying, we're a chosen nation again. We need to protect ourselves against those who are not followers of Yahweh. In verse 15, he also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Yahweh, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of Yahweh and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. And he set up the altar of Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he said for Judah to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
Now, verse 17 does give a little caveat here. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to Yahweh their God. So that's a lot of progress. Now, turn back to Matthew 1. The point of Manasseh in verse 10 of Matthew 1 is to demonstrate the grace of God because every Jew reading the history of Israel, remember the letter N that we did, when they get to Manasseh, that, just, that is just a, a, a horror beyond really anything we can imagine. And yet Manasseh is a story of the grace of God. There's other stories of the grace of God in here. You also noticed when we read this genealogy that there are four women mentioned. We're not including Mary at the very end, but she'll factor in as we'll see in a little bit. Mentioning women in the Jewish genealogy was almost unheard of. And so to give us kind of a baseline, let's be reminded of the stories of each of these women. First, we saw Tamar, verse 3. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar's story is told in Genesis 38. She was Judah's daughter-in-law and the widow of his dead oldest son. Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, or Shelah. Judah got a wife for Ur named Tamar. But Ur was wicked in God's eyes and God killed him. So Judah told Onan to go to Tamar to give his dead brother a son uh, this is even before the law of Moses gave the law of the lever at marriage in which a man was bound to give a child to his dead brother's wife. This was still normal in the ancient Near East. It was to preserve his lineage and to give that dead brother an heir. It was a protection for the family. But Onan purposefully avoided his duty and God killed him as well. So two down, one to go. But he's still a boy, a young teenager most likely. Judah promised that when Sheila grew up, he would give Tamar to him, but he didn't do it. Judah had no grandchildren and he didn't seem concerned about it. Tamar, meanwhile, had been living as a grieving widow in their father's house at Judah's instruction, waiting for Judah to keep his promise to her, waiting for years. And when he didn't fulfill his word, she took matters into her own hands. After Judah's wife had died, he immorally sought the company of a local prostitute. Only this local prostitute was in fact Tamar in disguise, specifically going after Judah so that she could have children in his family. When Judah was told that his daughter-in-law Tamar had conceived in immorality, he was indignant, quite hypocritically so, we might add. But then Tamar proved that he was the father. So he was humiliated. He was forced to show mercy when he was on the verge, literally, of having her executed for sexual immorality. And not only did Tamar conceive, but she gave birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. So there's Tamar. Then there was Rahab. Verse 5, and Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. We see the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. She was the prostitute of the city of Jericho who protected and hid the two Israelite spies right before the conquest of Jericho. She asked for and received protection for her and her whole family when Israel invaded Jericho and became a part of the nation of Israel. And so verse 5 here says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. What does that mean? It is possible that Rahab was Salmon's wife, but this might present a chronological challenge in terms of timing after the conquest. But the wording here is very specific. 
to allow for the possibility that Solomon was descended from Rahab. But the text is, is abundantly clear that we're to view Rahab as if she is the mother of Boaz. So we'll leave it at that. In either case, Jesus Christ is descended from Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. Then we have Ruth, probably most familiar to us. Verse 5, second line, And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. The book of Ruth tells the story of the young Moabite woman who had married a young Israelite man, and this man had subsequently died before they had children. The man's mother, Naomi, took Ruth back with her to Israel, to the area right around Bethlehem, and this was at Ruth's insistence. She insisted on going, and Ruth would eventually marry Boaz, a godly man. Ruth demonstrated a genuine faith in Yahweh, and yet the law said in Deuteronomy 23.3 that no Moabite was allowed in the gathering of public worshipers for ten generations. So she was still even an outcast. And then finally, we have the wife of Uriah. Verse 6, And Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And this is, of course, speaking of Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 tells the sad story of David and Bathsheba and their adultery, and how because of her pregnancy by David, David eventually had her husband Uriah killed in battle and was disciplined greatly by the Lord as a result of this wickedness. You notice that Bathsheba's name isn't even mentioned. There's a lot of speculation about that, but there's probably a couple of good reasons. First of all, Uriah was an innocent victim, and listing his name keeps his memory alive, and it also reminds everyone that Bathsheba was originally his wife and brings back the memory of David murdering Uriah to protect his own reputation when Bathsheba had become pregnant in her affair with David. Now, I'll just say this for a second because it's become a big issue again. A lot of ink has been spilled trying to make Bathsheba a victim of rape or sexual coercion of some sort by David. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. That's just an attempt to interpret Scripture through the lens of current political trends. And that's a bad way to interpret the Bible. She was complicit in the affair and she was treated as the Queen of Israel after her marriage to King David. You remember that the child conceived in sin was taken from David and Bathsheba by God in discipline of David. But God blessed their marriage and gave them a son named Solomon. In fact, this was proof that God blessed David and Bathsheba subsequent to their sin, that they were forgiven after the death of their child. 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25 records, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now Yahweh loved him and sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the sake of Yahweh. It's a nickname, Jedidiah, that means beloved of the Lord. That is a sign of God's blessing of their marriage. So all that is to say that while Bathsheba was forgiven by God, neither was she a passive victim in the sin of adultery. She was an active participant which eventually was forgiven and her love for David bloomed in marriage even despite the horrible circumstances of their union. But not only were these women, these four women, were they dubious in many ways, at least two of them were Gentile foreigners. Rahab was definitely a Canaanite from Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite. There's a good chance that Tamar and Bathsheba also were Gentile foreigners. Tamar was the wife of Judah's sons. 
uh, Judah's son. This is important because there were no Jewish women yet except any of the daughters of Judah's brothers. So she's almost certainly not descended from, da- from Jacob. And in fact, Jewish literature after the writing of the Old Testament considered Tamar a foreign woman who converted to be a worshiper of Yahweh. Bathsheba is called the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That doesn't prove that she was also a Hittite, but the fact that she's called the wife of the Hittite says that she either was not Jewish or she was at least considered to not be Jewish because she had married a foreigner. Three out of the four are associated with notorious sexual immorality. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Ruth was from a people not even allowed to publicly worship God. There are many lessons of grace that could be drawn from these four women. Let me just point out two. First of all, to the Jewish reader of Matthew's Gospel, the reader is forced to acknowledge the grace of God because these four, in many ways, scandalous women are included in the eternal genealogy of the King of Israel. They have to acknowledge grace. And the second lesson we could take from this is that although through these women, Messiah himself has Gentile blood, as it were. It reminds us that He is the Savior of the world, not just of Israel. Now, being in this genealogy is not a guarantee of personal salvation at all. But we can say this about these women. Tamar was desperate even to the point of risking her life to be part of the covenant people of God, to bear a child in that family. And yes, she did act immorally, But the bigger picture is she literally kept alive the line of the Messiah. Rahab joined the nation of Israel and we must assume she believed in the God who, who was going to destroy her home in Jericho. I'll read to you her confession a little bit later. And her marriage into the line of Messiah could only happen if she took on the faith of the true God, the faith of Yahweh. Ruth is probably one of the clearer cases. She's clearly presented as a Moabite under the curse of no Moabite gathering with God's people. And yet she's clearly a worshiper of God and she marries one of the very few godly men left in Israel during the time of the judges. And she is presented in Scripture and for generation after generation after generation to Jewish young girls, Ruth has been presented as the example of young women, young womanhood and how a woman is to behave. And then Bathsheba, What about her? Later in life, she is shown to be a beloved counselor and a helper to her son, King Solomon. And she is almost certainly the author of Proverbs 31. A letter to a young nobleman on how to behave and how to pick a wife. And she writes this, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Clearly true faith. And so the very genealogy of Christ itself, it points us to the fact that he came to seek and save the lost. To save men like Manasseh and women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. God is gracious. Here's a sixth theological purpose. Mary is anticipated. Mary is anticipated. In verse 16 And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. The genealogy established Joseph as the legal adoptive father of Jesus. But Matthew very clearly emphasizes that Jesus is biologically only from Mary. 
And this prepares the reader for the next section, which focuses very intently on the virgin birth by shifting attention away from Joseph and on to Mary specifically. But Mary and the virgin birth are anticipated in another way as well. And let's just stop here for a moment, because if you've grown up in the church or you came to steadfast, even as a newer believer, or you've heard any number of sermons, you've heard about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And it's no longer become such a shocking thing to us. Oh yeah, the virgin birth, yeah, no big deal. It's a big deal. It's the only time it's ever happened. It is absolutely stunningly miraculous. And let me ask you this. Any other time in history, any young woman you know who's not married, who comes to you and says, I'm not married and I haven't been with a man, but I'm pregnant. What would you say? Yeah, right. We would never believe her. This is an absolute scandalous event here as far as other people looking at that. So keep that in the back of your mind. Because the birth of Jesus was initially surrounded by at least the appearance of scandal and it continued to be surrounded by the appearance of scandal. Joseph, Mary's betrothed husband, meant to quietly divorce Mary. And let me just back up here and tell you a little legal uh, situation here. There were two different legal ways to divorce your wife. And they were in competition with one another. One led to a merciful moving on with your life while the other led to the death penalty for the sin of adultery. Joseph meant to use the merciful means. Why? He was going to divorce her because Mary was pregnant and the child was not his. We know that in one of our messages at the Steadfast Bible Conference that as Jesus grew up, the people around him were suspicious that Joseph was not Jesus' father and even mocked Jesus for it during his ministry. So the circumstances around the birth of Messiah are are rocked with scandal. And so is the genealogy of Jesus himself. You have these women, either Gentiles or prostitutes or both, as far outside of the faith from a human standpoint that you could possibly be. You have Tamar dressing as a prostitute and tricking her own father-in-law into conceiving in her Perez and Zerah, Perez being in the line of Christ Jesus. You have Rahab, Scripture makes no attempt to smooth over her lifestyle. Joshua 2 verse 2 says that the spies hid in the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And yet this prostitute would become part of Israel and take a Jewish husband and have sons of her own. So you have Tamar with sons. You have have Rahab with sons. You have Ruth, the childless widow of an Israelite man, which, by the way, would have branded her as not loved by God on multiple levels because she didn't have children after a decade of marriage. And not only that, that she's a foreigner, not only that she's a Moabite specified in the law of God to not be allowed into public worship, but you put all those together, she's about as low life as you can get in the eyes of an Israelite. And this low life Moabite married one of the few good men left in Israel, and they had a son by this woman, by Ruth. And you have Bathsheba bathing in a place she would be visible from the roof of David's palace and marrying David after David had her husband murdered and she eventually became the mother of Solomon. So you have four women rocked with scandal, which includes the birth of sons, which results from this scandal. And so by the time you get to Mary, a sweet Israelite girl who's moral and upright and loves the Lord, her situation's downright vanilla compared to everyone else. 
Now, we put it this way. After the scarlet scandals of the famous four females, the virgin birth comes as a relief. Oh, finally, something I can kind of deal with here. Matthew sets up the reader about to read the account of the virgin birth to not be surprised. Tamar, dressed as a prostitute, almost died, gave birth to twins. Check. Rahab, Rahab escaped the doomed city after a life of sin and married into a godly family, has a son. Check. Ruth goes from idol-worshipping Moabite to God-fearing Bethlehemite. Check. Bathsheba, bathing in front of the king, conceives illegitimate son of the king. King kills her husband. King repents to God, marries Bathsheba. She gives birth to Solomon. Check. So, Mary, nice young girl from Galilee. Holy Spirit comes upon her. Joseph thinks she's been unfaithful, but she hasn't. Pregnant with the Son of God. Check. No big deal. Do you see how God has built the faith of the reader to get to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and say, I can accept that. He smooths the way to faith. Mary is anticipated. Israel is central. God is sovereign. Jesus is Messiah King. The Messiah King is God. God is gracious. Mary is anticipated. We'll look at one more theological purpose, and that is God is faithful. God is faithful. God has been moving His redemptive plan. He's been moving along the whole time since the beginning of Scripture. And the genealogy of Matthew simply shows that God is right on track. I'd like to take a moment, if we could, to take a little tour for script, through Scripture just to show you that Matthew simply continues what God has already had going. Turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, we're just going to read some Scriptures together. I just want to show you this pattern. Genesis 2, and we'll proceed to a number of passages in Genesis and then on to Ruth. Genesis 2, verse 4. We're looking for specific phrases and words here. Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. Genesis 5, verse 1. Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Genesis 6, verse 9. Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations, Noah walked with God. Genesis 10, verse 1. Genesis 10, verse 1. We get more specific. Now these are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And sons were born to them after the flood. Genesis 11, verse 10. Gets even more specific. These are the generations of Shem, Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. Genesis 11, verse 27. Genesis 11, verse 27. Even more specific. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Genesis 25, verse 12. Genesis 25, verse 12 And this is going to show, by the way, that God will also save Gentiles down the road. So we take a a slight deviation from the line of Messiah. Genesis 25, verse 12. Now these are the generations of Ishmael. 
Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant woman, bore to Abraham. Genesis 25, verse 19. Now these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Genesis 36, verse 1. Genesis 36, verse 1. Again, this will show God's grace to the nations eventually. Genesis 36, verse 1. Now these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Genesis 37, verse 2. Genesis 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. So with the exception of Ishmael and Esau, each of these introductory statements continues the line of Messiah. Turn to Ruth chapter 4. In Ruth 4, we'll see the last time this formula is used in reference to the Messianic line. Ruth 4, right at the end of the chapter. It's only a couple pages in your Old Testament. Ruth 4, beginning in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron. And then skip down, of course, to verse 22. And Obed became the father of Jesse. And Jesse became the father of David. Let that ring in your mind. Jesse became the father of David. Turn back to Matthew chapter 1. What is Matthew doing? He's picking up where Ruth 4 left off. Continuing the plan of God. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is just continuing all the way back from Genesis 2, verse 4. Genesis 5, Genesis 6, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, Genesis 25, and so forth. God is faithful to His messianic promises. This was not plan B. This has always been His plan. I'd like to finish up our time tonight returning to the women in this story once again because they have a bigger role to play. One that is not necessarily apparent right here from the genealogy, but from their stories. We've already seen that they're demonstrations of the grace of God, but in a larger and much more global sense. They're also demonstrations of the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful. Each one of these women and their stories represent one overarching principle, one thought, one truth, and that is that when Israel was unfaithful, God was still faithful. When Israel was unfaithful, God was still faithful to preserve the coming of Messiah Jesus, to preserve this chosen line. Each woman stands in some way in contrast to the faithlessness of of Israel at crucial times in their history. Judah, the son of Jacob, he was the son through whom Messiah was to come. Genesis 49.10, he was to be part of growing the family chosen by God to form the nation of Israel, and yet he seemed unconcerned with this. He even broke his promise to Tamar to give her his last son. The whole episode of Tamar dressing up as a cult prostitute and conceiving twin sons with Judah, it comes at the oddest place. Genesis 38, right in the middle of the story of Joseph. Right in the middle of the story of Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, through whom God would work to eventually rescue the whole family during famine. Why is it stuck right there? Because what we see is a contrast. Joseph would suffer for a long time, for decades, and would go to great heights to save his entire family, including Judah and his family, by the way. 
while Judah couldn't care less about continuing the family line. Tamar literally risked her life. She was almost executed for her immorality before it was learned that Judah was the father. She risked her life to conceive those sons. Contrast this with the faithlessness of Judah, who didn't have in his heart God's plan to promulgate his family from whom would come Messiah. Tamar was more faithful than Judah. How about Rahab? She also risked her life to be part of the covenant people of God. She betrayed her own people of Jericho and single-handedly saved her extended family. Listen to the confession of Rahab. Joshua 2, verse 11. This is her confession. Yahweh, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And you remember what happened during the conquest of Jericho. Those same two men that Rahab had hidden and rescued, they went and rescued her and her father and her mother and her brothers Joshua 6.23 says that they were brought and placed, quote, outside the camp of Israel. That's important. Because apparently the family kept the laws of the sojourner from the Old Testament to become part of Israel because verse 25 of Joshua 6 says, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua preserved alive and she has lived not outside the camp, in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. In other words, she's a war hero and she risked her life to trust God. Why is that important at that time in history? What had just happened in Israel's history? Just before this, the first generation of Israelites wandered the wilderness for 40 years and died out under the judgment of God because they could not judge God, they could not trust God rather, and they were cowardly they were too afraid to invade canaan but rahab acts like a female james bond and is the spy keeper how about ruth ruth lived during the time of the judges when israel was continually demonstrating unfaithfulness to god and yet she as a foreigner as a moabite woman she uprooted everything she had ever known she came to israel to live as a faithful israelite following the god of israel showing herself to be a woman of character of of strength of love and devotion the book of ruth calls her a noble woman and through her would come king david her great-grandson and how about uriah uriah like ruth was a foreigner he was a hittite And yet he had pledged himself to the God of Israel so much so that he would fight as a mighty warrior on behalf of the king of Israel, David. Uriah was faithful when David was unfaithful. And in a sense, Uriah gave his life with the eventual consequence that Solomon would be born of David and Bathsheba. The point is, is that all through the centuries, when Israel was faithless, God was faithful. Israel is central. God is sovereign. Jesus is Messiah King. The Messiah King is God. God is gracious. Mary is anticipated. And God is faithful. I'd like to ask one question from this. I'm going to take a few moments to arrive at that question, but it's a very important question. And to get to that question, I want to have you turn with me and we'll finish our time tonight in 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and we'll work our way to that question I'd like to show you your spiritual genealogy, your heritage, because you are referenced in 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, 
verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. This is your spiritual heritage we're going to look at here. 1 Peter 1, 8. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And I want to focus on that. You have received as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Now, it might be all too easy to start your spiritual genealogy with yourself. Well, the outcome of my faith. That your faith in Christ's story, as I'll call it, started at that moment. That's not what Peter's going to say. Your faith in Christ's story started long before you were ever here. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter says that the prophets prophesied that grace would come to you through the sufferings and the glorification of Christ. And suddenly you become the central figure. That's very unusual in Scripture. So you should, you should relish this while you can. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets were serving you. So your faith in Christ's story goes back at least to the ancient prophets of the Old Testament. That's a long ways back. Look at the first two verses of 1 Peter 1. Very familiar to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is important. Because no one can say this is passive knowledge, that God knew who would choose him. That's, that's wrong. No, God chose you. When? When did he do that? Ephesians 1 tells us, before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Before the foundations of the world, God has never gained knowledge. He's never changed his mind on anything. Before the foundations of the world is simply a way to tell us as finite human beings that this has been infinite. The choice of the elect has always been the case, but God assigns a point in time just to make it to where our brains don't just blow up when we try and figure that out. Now, your faith in Christ's story doesn't just go back to the prophets of the Old Testament. It goes back to before creation, and we could argue, to eternity past. Verse 3, though, says God caused you to be born again. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. This inheritance that you're going to have is described as having been kept in heaven for you. This is a, a perfect passive participle. Having been kept, it means this is a completed action in the past that has consequences that will continue on. There's no reference to time here but it must be in relation to when you were chosen, which again was before the foundation of the world. But the references in time 
to, to time in relation to your faith in Christ's story, they don't just go back in time, they go forward. We just saw this. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, that you're protected all the way to heaven. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that the salvation of all true believers will be confirmed as true at the appearing of Christ. So, we have your faith in Christ's story not starting when you were born again, but going back to the prophets, back to the foundations of the world, and forward to heaven and to the revealing of Christ. I'm working my way to my one question for us. As we've studied the genealogy of Jesus Christ, not one of you got up and walked out in protest. Why? Because we had no problem believing and seeing for ourselves in his genealogy that the coming of Christ didn't start at his birth. It goes back to the prophets. It goes back to heaven. It was divinely orchestrated from so many angles that it defies attempt to give any mathematical probability. The whole genealogy points to Jesus as the Davidic king who will reign in the future forever and ever. So we believe the genealogy of Jesus, which did not start when he was born, but goes back to eternity past, goes forward to certainty in the future. So here's my question. If we believe that the genealogy of Jesus, which did not start when he was born, but goes back to eternity past and goes forward in certainty to the future, why does anyone have difficulty believing what 1 Peter 1 tells us? That our faith in Christ's story did not start when we were born again, but goes back to eternity past and goes forward in certainty to the future. The same sovereign God who worked out the perfect plan for bringing Christ to earth has worked out the perfect plan for bringing you to heaven. And he did it in the same way. And so I would assert that it's intellectually inconsistent to believe the theological implications of the genealogy of Jesus Christ and yet not believe those same exact principles found in 1 Peter 1 concerning the genealogy of the believer. And now... Because of the genealogy of Christ and because your spiritual genealogy going back through the prophets to eternity past, now your genealogy is intact. In fact, did you know that the Bible draws your family tree? Romans 8, beginning in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many, what? Brothers. So you see, you can add one more name to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You can add yours. Because you are the offspring of his faithfulness. You are the brother and sister of the Lord Messiah, King Jesus. God was faithful to bring him at the right time. God was faithful to bring you in your spiritual birth at the right time. Because of that, we will all be united in one grand family. May that day come soon. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for this stately, majestic, and royal genealogy. Lord, it's almost such that we probably should have stood 
in awe and in honor of you as we read the story of the king of all the kings. We praise you, Father, that he came in the fullness of time, as Galatians 4, 4 says, and we praise you that there will be a day when the voice from the temple in heaven thunders and the angel comes and he comes to the Son of God and says, it is time. And once again, in the fullness of time, Christ will come. We look forward to seeing him face to face. May that day come soon. We thank you and we praise you for including us in the genealogy of our Savior, that we are brothers and sisters to the firstborn among many. We thank you and we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.